Hello, everyone. I'm Trent Luce. Welcome to another adventure of Rural Route, the program where we gather every day at this time. Well, we do it Monday through Friday anyway. And what we do when we gather is continue to address the issues between food production and food consumption. One of the issues that I try to spend as much time as I possibly can as it involves the connection between food production and food consumption is the utilization of the resources, property rights, and that we can use our property as we see fit. And what we've accomplished in doing that since 1776, or probably more importantly since 1862, is that we have improved the efficiency of the number of people that are fed per acre massively. And I'm just going to set this up. Because of property rights, because of our ability to use our property as we see fit, most importantly, we're driven by what's happening with the next generation. But as a result of that, it now requires less than one-third of an acre to produce enough food to feed one person for a year, where in 1900, it required 10 acres of land to produce enough food to feed one person for a year. So why am I walking through this whole scenario about property rights is because even if you have a piece of property that you own that is dated back to 1862, which most of the country on the western side of the Mississippi River has a deed tied to it that came as a result of the Homestead Act. And in the great state of Minnesota, the Great Lakes state of Minnesota, there are individuals late 1800s that made their way there, family members. And I happen to have, a, and then I'm just going to call Ralph on joining us from Yellow Medicine County, Minnesota. Your family has been in the Granite, is it Granite Falls? Is that your actual address? Right, yeah. Rural, yeah. Well, it used to be a rural route too, but they, they don't do a rural route anymore. Yeah. I, wish they, <laughs> I don't want to know your physical address. <laughs> I'm yeah, just no. getting your town. But um, how long has your family been there in Yellow Medicine County? Uh, you know, we go back to around 1880. My great-grandfather immigrated from Norway through Ellis Island and ended up uh, in southwest Minnesota in Yellow Medicine County. And um, and he, he was a young man, and he, he married one of the neighbors um, who came to that territory probably 1860s or 1850s. So my great-grandmother was there, you know, several years before my, my great-grandfather. But it, we go back to the, the mid-1800s. Yeah, that that puts some time on you. You sound really young for being that old. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> so, my wife you yeah, you want to put her on? I'll tell her for you right now if you want me to. Um, so I walk through the whole property rights scenario because I, I'm getting wind, and I'm and thanks to you and a cousin of yours that um, th- there's something in the mix to erode your property rights. What's going on in Yellow Yellow Medicine County that has us concerned? Well, the um, the state of Minnesota has has decided to land transfer. There's an Upper Sioux Agency State Park that um, is about 1,400 acres, and and that dates uh, the historical aspect of that dates back to the 1860s, where they had the the Sioux uprising, and then the Battle of Wood Lake, which was also very close to that, but not in the park. Uh, the Battle of Wood Lake is very significant as well, and that's all on private property, but. The uh, the uprising, Sioux uprising in 1862, I believe, um, is is as a result of the state park. The state wanted that property to um, 
bring to light that conflict. And, and it wasn't good on either side. Uh, there was a lot of natives at the time that were, that, uh, that were killed. And there was a lot of, uh, settlers and, you know, pioneer people that were killed. And, you know, the numbers, I don't, you know, it, you could look back at history, but it, there was, uh, you know, maybe close to a thousand uh, white settlers that were, that were killed in that conflict, uh, you know, men, women, and children. And several hundred, uh, Native Americans were also killed. But so it's just, it's an area of, uh, like some people have said, there's no heroes in that area. And there was, there was, um, um, you know, bad things happening on, on both sides. But the state park, uh, bought that land in the, in the 1960s, I believe. And it's been a state park ever since. And then a few farmers around it have sold, sold their land to the state park shortly after, you know, maybe in the late, 1968 69 and a lot of that land was low land that that flooded out frequently and the, the state came to them and, and asked if they could purchase their land to put into the state park and they agreed so that's how the park grew to about 1400 acres today um and 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 now the state of minnesota um it seems to be really sponsored heavily by our governor governor walls but uh, he has said that he wants to give that or convey that land back to the to the uh, Sioux community um, as a result of the 18, the atrocities that happened in the 1860s. Um, and, and not that anybody is against the, the, the Sioux community. We, we respect their culture. We respect, you know, everything that they do. Um, they've conducted themselves, you know, very professionally um, and everybody gets along, but just that the, the state of Minnesota that bought land from farmers that bought the land are now just transferring it to the Sioux community. And it was kind of done um, a little bit in secret, it seemed. Um, the, the, the Sioux, the earliest we heard about it is one, one of the local papers had an article about it, and everybody was really surprised. And by the time we started looking into it and getting involved, it, the, the, um, there was already a House bill um, and a Senate bill written and, and flowing through committees before there was any open communication about it. And, and the other strange thing is there's no local support for it. All of the legislatures that are pushing the bill are all from the metro, all from around Anoka County, uh, Minneapolis. And, and I don't know if any of those folks have even been out to that area. I don't think they really understand the, the impact. And I, I think it's just, it seems to be, it seems to be just something that, happening that they, they don't really want anybody to know about and and our, our local um our local um chairman of this the Sioux tribe out there who who has conducted himself very professionally and uh you know we we do respect him in his position but he has also said that even though this the state of minnesota would land grant this park uh to the sioux community ultimately it it ends up in federal government control which seems to be maybe even a, a, a bigger issue. Um, the federal, and I've read some documents, Trent, and I think maybe I, I've sent those to you too, but some folks are saying that the federal government would pay upwards of $10 million to the state of Minnesota for this land transfer to the Sioux community, which gets into another whole issue of, you know, what's going on with that. So in a nutshell, that's, that's what's happening. So what I hear is that, um, let's just say Governor Walsh, if, if, if he's the one spearheading, which it appears that he is, 
um, it, it's in the, the theme of reparations, reparations for slavery, reparations for all of these other things. And it sounds to me like that if the state of Minnesota talked about granting this, or if you want to use the word gifting, whatever word you want to use, or even selling to the federal government, there would be, I'm going to use the word on purpose, an uprising. But yet, if if they grant it to the tribe, the, the very people that we stole it from back in the days of colonizing America, everybody's going to go along with it. Nobody's going to ask any questions. And what people seem to not understand, and uh, Ralph, I happen to have a bit of an insight on this because I lived on the Rosebud Indian Reservation for five years. I worked closely with the Rosebud Sioux tribe. They talk about being a sovereign nation, and everybody brags about the Indian Reservation as a sovereign nation. It's sovereign from state jurisdiction, but they're they're completely controlled by the federal government. And so even if it doesn't actually get transferred in ownership to the federal government, they control it because the federal government has authority on all reservation land in this country. And and I'm open to somebody telling me where I'm wrong, but I lived this. I saw this. And so I'm just conflicted on what really they think they're going to accomplish. And now, Ralph from Yellow Medicine County, I've, I've filled enough time that I have to go to a break. We will pick it up right there, try to bring some clarity and uh, see if we can find some rationale behind any of this that's happening. And because there was a meeting last night and that's where we'll pick it up when we get back with more roll route on the other side. Right off the bat today, let's talk about certified Piedmontese as a consumer. When you pay good money, hard earned money, I'm going to make the the case that uh, beef consumers are hardworking people. You want to know that this is going to really reward you and be satisfactory. That's that's what you want when you spend money for food. Certified Piedmontese is making that become a reality. Tenderness is the number one issue that drives satisfaction when it comes to beef consumption. And we are tender, not through some mechanical tenderization. And I don't know that there's anything wrong with that, but this is through genetic selection. The Piedmontese breed itself possesses two copies of the myostatin gene. Those copies are responsible for regulated muscle growth. They don't regulate the muscle in the Piedmontese cattle. Consequently, we call them double muscle many times. What does that mean? That means they have a lot of muscle fibers that are extremely fine textured, like fine wool, and it requires less chewing. CertifiedPiedmontese.com. Check out the protein plethora online. Welcome back. Grant Luce. You know the worst part of this whole story, Ralph of Yellow Medicine County? I spoke in Murray County, had a fantastic meeting with the Murray County cattlemen. I don't know when that was. Angie, you'll have to remind me, last week of March, maybe. And I drove through Yellow Medicine and Granite Falls because I was going to go check out that uh, nuclear power plant in Montevideo. I left Albert Lee. I, I had to deliver some things in Albert Lee, and then I went to Montevideo to check out this nuclear power plant that had a leak. You know the problem with that, Ralph? There's what, no, what's that? There's no nuclear power plant in Montevideo. I went to Montevideo just to see the park, I guess. You were going to Monticello. Yeah, I was supposed to be in Monticello. 
<laughs> and and now I, I went right through Granite Falls. I went through Yellow Madison County. I could have done a little sniffing around and learned about this, but I didn't know until this week. So timing's everything. We're here now. Was there a meeting last night? Yeah, there was. There was a meeting uh, in, in, in Granite. And it, it, it was basically a landowner meeting. Uh, neighbors are landowner meeting. So it was fairly small. Uh, maybe 25, 30, maybe 20, 25 people. And, and, and those are the folks that are, you know, mainly affected by it. Um, and it, it was only the DNR was there. We were hoping that some of our local represent, represent, representatives would have been there. They apparently couldn't make it. They, they did not show up. And so it was, it was the, the DNR, the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources there. Um, and, you know, we asked the question to them if they are in favor of it. We were hoping for some neutrality, but they uh, quickly said, yes, absolutely, they're in favor of it. And it, it seems very odd that the Minnesota DNR would really be working on this, too, um, which was confusing for a lot of a lot of people. But there was a lot of questions raised and, and a lot of concerns on the land use and you know, what would happen if it if it passes and is transferred. Um, I, I guess there's a lot of surveying that has to be done yet. Um, you know, there, there, there are buildings within the state park that apparently the, I don't know if the DNR money would come from, but they would probably be raised. Um, they, they want to put the land back to what it was or as close as they, they could. And, um, the, the, um, there, there's also a road that runs through the state park, which was a Minnesota state funded highway. And it is no longer a state funded highway because there are some washouts and road. The road is kind of in disrepair and this, the state kind of, well, they didn't choose not to fix it. They, they just let it, let it go. And they took another county road, um, from the, the Yellowmaster County, I guess, to agency township from Anglesa Township Road. And, uh, according to one of the, the, um, township commissioners, they, said that the state of Minnesota basically said, we're going to take that road and give you this one. And there's, you know, nothing you can do about it. Um, and that kind of seemed to set it up too for, for a land transfer because the state of Minnesota has made that claim that, well, the, the road is a disrepair anyway. So we might as well transfer it, transfer it to the local tribe. But what, what came first? It seems like the road was intentionally put in disrepair. And that's only my opinion, but, um, you know, been out there all my life. There's a, there's culverts, there's drainage and there's things like that that just weren't maintained, weren't kept up. And, and there's also a bridge that runs across the Yellow Medicine River. And there's some discussion of removing that bridge, um, because it's end of life, but it was, it, I think it was 92 or no, 80, 92, I believe it was put in. It's not that old of a bridge. Um, there's there just a lot of things that are adding up coming from the state of Minnesota and the DNR that, that just really don't make sense. Um, and we're, we're kind of at what's saying. We just don't know what, what to do anymore. So Ralph, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a moment because I want to have a clear understanding and I want everybody with us to have a clear understanding. Uh, I, I started this program with a dissertation about property rights. And if this 1400 acres is, I'm going to use the word gifted, back to a tribe, any tribe. And even if it ends up in federal hands, how does it impact your property rights? Um, if they, if they remove the, 
part of this is removing the the bridge, um, which which would take away property that we have on on the other side of the bridge, um, not not even allow us to gain access to it. And you know, and it's we don't actively farm it anymore, but it's rented out. But we do use that as pash part of it as pasture and and part of it as tillable acres. Um, we we couldn't get to it, and and it affects other farmland that's a little further up the road as well. Um, and and I've read in some um, state documents that they are all already budgeting money to purchase that property. And, 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 and I mentioned to the DNR that that property is not for sale. You're, you're putting money in your budget to buy that property from who? Because we're not willing to sell it. Um, you, you can't, you can't remove access to our property. That's been in our family, you know, for all those years, 120 years of whatever it's been and, and think you're just going to take it or buy it. So that's, that's really got us concerned too. And, um, you know, there is some other property in the, the boundaries, of the state park that affect other farmers there as well, that they have to, um, you know, drive across that bridge and, and, and gain access from the state park to get to some property. And if that property is not available, um, they lose access to their property and maybe the local uh, Sioux community would, grant access through their property now i I don't know um they said that they would be good neighbors but if they remove the bridge you you can't get there anyway so um that that's how it it would impact us so uh, early on and early on in uh, 2021 because i I don't know if you know this or not but i'll tell you everybody else needs to know march the 9th 2021 I emceed the first ever meeting about 30 by 30. 30 by 30 is the executive order 14008 signed by Joe Biden on January 21st, 2021, saying that by 2030, 30% of the land and water would be returned to its natural state. This past couple of weeks, Ralph, I've, I've recognized that the water returning to its natural state means pre-irrigation, pre-water management that we put into place. And I recognize I'm talking about Yellow Medicine County, Minnesota, which you're probably more concerned about tiling than you are about irrigation. It doesn't matter. You, you eliminate water development that has occurred. But when I started really focusing on 30 by 30, which did not come from the Biden administration or the U.S., it came directly from the United Nations, and you can find where they have been promoting this, and that's what's going on in the Netherlands with the Dutch farmers. And Trudeau was one of the early adopters of 30 by 30, but there was a book that I saw. I didn't see the book. I saw it online, and then I tried to find it, and now I can't find it anywhere where the whole premise behind 30 by 30 was that we're going to take 30% of the land and we're going to gift it back to the indigenous peoples of North America. Mm. And and I I saw that two years ago. Now I can't find any relevant relevance of it. And when, and so when I heard about what was happening in Illa Madison County, Minnesota, I said, light bulb time, this is exactly what I saw was going to take place. And what I'm hearing from you is that's exactly what's happening. It, yeah, it seems, and, and you have brought that to light for us too. So we do appreciate that. Um, and we, w- during the meeting, we we brought that up to one of the, the DNR. Uh, I'm not sure what his title was, but uh, one of the leaders that was was there representing the DNR, 
And we asked him, "Is uh, do you know about the 30 by 30? And he looked at us a little suspiciously, but he goes, yes, I do. <laughs> and he, does, this have, does this have anything to do with that? And he, he, he really didn't make a comment, but he didn't, he didn't definitely did not want to talk about it and kind of brushed it off to the side really quick and moved on to, you know, other topics. But he, he did admit that he, he is aware of it. So it absolutely is, is a real thing, which was an eye opener to me because I wasn't aware of it. And I, I have done some re- little research since. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it's, it's, it, you know, it's one of those things that you think would never happen. It's like, well, that can't be real. That, you know, that's just, you know, some, somebody trying to get people excited about something, but it's a real thing. It's, it's absolutely a real thing. And they, he admitted it. Yes. I, I know about it. It's, you know, admitting that it is a, is the real deal. So that, it's, uh, it's alarm. Yeah. Well, let me just remind <clears throat> for my listeners in Minnesota, when you take the water back to its natural state, think about what water development has occurred with all of the lakes and ditches and everything. In the last 100 years in the state of Minnesota, closing minute here, uh, Ralph Yellow, Medicine County, what do you want us to take home from this? Such a great country, and we have such um, great natural resources that, that we've been accustomed to. And it seems like, well, all of us are out enjoying it, whether we live on a farm or ranch or if we're riding horse. Um, we're doing all that. It seems like there's a part of the government that doesn't take time off to enjoy it. They're spending their time trying to figure out how to make us not enjoy it as much um, by removing some of our rights. And it seems like that's what we're doing. They're removing our rights to some of our, some of our land that we've come to, to use and love all these years and enjoy. But people need to get involved and really stay focused and, and uh, keep your eyes open. We'll be back with more Roll Route after this. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Trent Luce. Roll Route continues. Ralph from Yellow Medicine County, Minnesota. He needed to get back to work. Like I was talking about there with the certified Piedmontese message that uh, beef eaters are workers. I've been thinking a lot about this during the break. In fact, it was my friend, Chief Philip Whiteman, Jr., who first told me about, and he's the Northern Cheyenne tribe, a dear friend of mine. He was at the man march with us, and man, um, his man Cato is on my mind because I'm also talking about Mandan. Last year, September, September 17th, I believe it was, we had the man march. And um, you know that the, the issue is history. I've just read an account that December 26, 1862, 38 Dakota men were executed in Mankato. And this account was written by a special correspondent from the New York Times. It is a chilling account of the execution, the conviction of murder and other outrages against the settlers during the U.S.-Dakota War of 1862. So there were 304 Indians who were convicted of murder and other outrageous charges of uh, raiding, killing, maiming settlers in Minnesota at the time. 
First, I got to say that if you if you walk through this and you know this to be true, that um, the death in any way, shape, or form of a human being is not a pleasant thing. And again, I got to take that a step further. I'm a person that takes the life of an animal on a regular basis. We butcher them, we eat them. It's their consumptive use. Creating death is not something that comes easy to any normal person. So you, you can't read this situation from yesteryear without a degree of empathy and almost sympathy. But when you look at the Indian executions in Minnesota in 1862 without looking at what they did to these families. For example, there was a young man who was a kid and his parents were killed by these raiding Indians. And, and I, I'm not clear exactly what I'm, what I'm assuming is that with 304 were convicted in a military court and that then President Abraham Lincoln selected 39 that would be executed just as a, a public display and if nothing else to create a deterrent. That's that's why you would do that, to to stop the uprising at the time. What I struggle with, and I don't think I would be any different. I don't know. I, I, I don't know because it happens today. If there's an execution today of a serial killer, there are people that show up. But they're estimating that there have the largest one-time occupancy of Mankato, Minnesota, to the tune of maybe 5,000 people was this day to witness this. And the military actually was afraid of an uprising because can you only imagine the hostility and the emotions if you, if you lost loved ones, if you lost family members, if you lost a brother, if you lost who you lost. And so the military was afraid of an uprising, not for the 30, not, not for the 39 that were to be executed, but for the balance of the 39 or the 304 that were not. And the accounts from this individual representing the New York Times tells the story of men, women, and children standing on the tops of buildings, standing on the banks of the river in Mankato. Everybody wanting to get a glimpse. And when the, when the gallows fall and the bodies are hanging there, and it goes into great graphic descriptions of, of who, and it names every single one, of who, who fought the most, who resisted, who died immediately, just brings it up close and personal. And I, I just, there were reportedly cheers. There were reportedly more emotion of, oh my goodness, I can't believe this happened. And yet, here we sit in 2023, trying to judge ourselves the actions of the individuals in 1862. I'm in no way, shape, or form say that somebody should get a free pass on this, but what is not being told in the accounts of this story is what pain was inflicted upon these family members that were killed. And I can't even find a report of how many people were killed in these raids. Well, we do know. We absolutely do know that there were wars taking place on the frontier and conflict between 
settlers and and in and American Indians. What my friend Hank Vogler, who every Monday has told us about, and he has Indian Cherokee blood in him, is that history tends to forget that before white European settlers, there was warring Indian tribes. It wasn't something new. As, as long as you have people who need to have resources for sustenance and you fight over, you fight over one or two things, access to food or reproduction, women. Those are the two things that are essential to life, food and reproduction. And so at the end of the day, we, this was not a religious fight in the day. And I do find it interesting that the accounts talk about the preachers that are present from Catholics and the Protestants and are helping give last rites or helping these American Indians in 1862 with the Christian principle. That doesn't even fit with me. I don't, I don't even understand that. Nobody can argue that when we began moving west that the American Indian was a Christian. I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus, and I believe that all of these things, are, are we are told that they're coming, and in the end we win. But I lived on the rosebud for five years, as I said earlier, and I understand the thought process, and I saw how the Catholic Church came into reservation and established missions and establish all of these things to help the kids. I I don't think that was best for the, the tribes and the cultures. And so why do we impose this Christian like value on them in, in 1862 when Philip has explained this to me, many of my friends on the reservation of South Dakota explained this to me. They they believe in a creator and the creator provides. And that's why they continually talked about the great white father in Washington, D.C. that was providing these things. And and the conversations that I had with people in 1998 through 2002 on the Rosebud is that it just tra- the Indian culture is that you take care of the resources and the resource will take care of you. And they've transferred that resource from being the great, the great creator, God, to the enabler being the federal government. And the federal government has made this horrendous... I, I actually am more concerned, and I would love to hear from any tribal member anywhere in this country. I'm not concerned about what happened in 1862 because, hey, here's the deal. It was the law of the land at the time. We were We were warring tribes. It would be in the military versus the uh, upper Sioux. We're warring tribes and crimes were committed and justice was brought in. That happened. That's that's what war is about. It's ugly. And at the end, you hope you're still the one standing. But I will tell you very passionately what has happened from the federal government to Indian culture and reservations and creating a dependency upon the federal government and, and, and this local tribal councils are not immune to this. They know that they can create a dependency upon their citizens. We have removed all hope. The one thing, I actually was um, 
a manager of a Bell Farms swine production facility on the Rosebud, a partnership with the Rosebud Sioux Tribe. I interviewed 132 tribal members for 17 positions, and it got to be the point where I was just fascinated in conducting these interviews and learning from these individuals, and my only regret, well, a few regrets in life is I didn't write this all down at the time. But you know who I hired? I hired the individuals that talked about what they wanted to accomplish tomorrow because the scenario that we have put the tribal members of this nation in, in a reservation situation, continually giving them their EBT card, giving them their commodities, doing the things that we have done to maintain this dependency upon the federal government has removed hope and promise for the future. And so the 17, excuse me, I had three non-tribal members that I hired. The 14 tribal members that I hired were the ones that talked about what they wanted to achieve tomorrow. And there were some glaring examples on vision and and hope and, and what they wanted to personally carve out as their own future. Dean Wilson was a great example of that, son of the, the tribal chairman that brought us to the reservation at the time, Norman Wilson, who's just a great American. I learned more from that man in five years living there than maybe I learned from anybody in my life. Norman Wilson. Think about this. Norman Wilson. How Indian is the name Wilson? Norman Wilson grew up in a time when the kids were coming through missions and they would go to families and they would take the white family name because there was this negative stigma about being an Indian. We've made a lot of mistakes in the past. We can't change any of those mistakes in the past. But we can recognize what's happening today and be very influential in what's beneficial for mankind, whether you're a tribal member or of Ukrainian descent in the United States. We'll take a break. We'll be back with the final segment of Roll Out after this. Let me take this opportunity to talk about Reliable Energy. Lignite Energy Council does a phenomenal job, as well as anybody I know, about using the website for information and the human interest side of energy production. Lignite is a coal. It's a coal that is found in North Dakota. And very insightfully, these North Dakota coal systems, I call it systems, found coal in North Dakota. And then they built the coal-fired power plants right there. So they're drag lines. They're hauling the coal directly from the the coal field to the power plant, generating electricity, putting it in a transmission line, sending it, and 40% of what's produced there goes outside of the state. And Minnesota, you are in big trouble because Governor Walz not only is doing this on a 30 by 30 initiative, he's trying to eliminate coal-fired power energy in Minnesota as well. Lignite.com for full details about the health and wealth of Lignite Coal. 